Well, how's it going, North Church? Really good to see you guys here. It's actually, for me, it has been a while since I got to be uh, kind of up here. For the last several weeks, I've had the privilege of being downstairs uh, working with the kids in kids ministry. Let me just tell you, your kids are the greatest ever. Yes, they are. And we've got the greatest kids ministry team down there also doing incredible things. But I've been down there a few weeks, and they, uh, they said, uh, Scott, thanks for being here. Thanks for being helpful. But what we're doing here is pretty important, and you're kind of in the way. <laughs> Why don't you see if you can go upstairs and make yourself useful? And so here I am. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. So if you're one of those folks who likes to get your Bible out and look through that, that's where you want to be heading. But while you're going there, I want to take just a moment uh, and acknowledge and address some of the things that have taken place in our nation over the course of the last week. It has been a difficult week, and I, like so many others, have been really troubled and really grieved by what we've observed in Minnesota and Louisiana and Dallas and kind of all that surrounds that. We're troubled by the, by the events themselves and maybe even more than that by what those events represent, right? The, the reinforcement that there is a divide and a brokenness in the fabric of our society that, uh, that is maybe just worse and further apart than we uh, were, were willing to acknowledge even a week ago. And it's so powerful and it's so poignant that it requires us as a people, as individual followers of Christ, but as the church also, it requires us to respond in some way. We can't just act like it's not happening, right? And as Christians, as disciples, as the church, I simply want to say this. We do not have, we are not given the luxury of just choosing sides. We don't have the luxury to just sit back and, and assign blame to whichever groups or, or individuals that we think are responsible. That is not our role as salt and light in this world. What we do as followers of Christ is we align ourselves first, last, and always with him. And where Jesus is, we will align there. And so we recognize that Jesus aligns himself with those who suffer injustice. Jesus aligns himself with those who are oppressed, right? He, he came down and he actually willingly went to the cross and was put to death by an oppressive, tyrannical government. And as an, as an innocent, he was put to death unjustly, unfairly by an oppressive regime. And Jesus identifies there. And so must we. But Jesus also identifies with those who are in authority and those who are born of privilege. He, he existed as God. He had all the privileges of, of being God, Scripture tells us. And then he took on the title of, of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He wields incredible authority. And there also, he, he leads in that process. How? By laying down his life, by emptying himself of all that privilege. And by exercising authority in a way that serves others. And he lays down his life for the purpose of an example of serving those whom he would lead. Where Jesus is, we align ourselves and we align ourselves with him as well. Ultimately, what we must do is to cry out to God. To say, God, there is, there is damage done in our country and there is damage done in our nation. There is brokenness that must be healed. And there is no human institution and no human answer for what ails us but only God in his wisdom, in his power, and in his authority can accomplish. And we must cry out to him. And we must allow his Holy Spirit to um, shine the light of truth on our individual lives and say, uh, and reveal to us, where am I at fault? 
What, what complicity do I bring? And God, would you change that in me first as I pray for your hand at work in the broader society? So I'd like to invite you to pray with me uh, in these next few moments. Heavenly Father, our hearts are uh, grieved and we are deeply, powerfully troubled by uh, what we have seen this week. God, we mourn with those families who are going home to loved ones who are no longer there. And God, we pray your comfort on them. We pray your grace in those situations. God, we pray that your church would rise up and be comforting as well in those places. But God, we ask as well that you would do a miracle in our land. God, that where there's the lasting wounds of long-term inequity and injustice, God, we pray that you would heal that. God, where we have been slow to recognize and to respond to injustices, we repent of that. And we say, God, would you, would you show us where we've done that and show us where we need to move? God, where we've been slow to support those in authority and slow to, uh, uh, to pray for them and support and intercede for them, God, we repent of that as well. God, we want to be able to see your kingdom come and your will be done here and amongst this land and this nation. And yet, God, we know that that begins with making our hearts open to you. So, God, would you transform us first and, and show us where we must grow. Show us where we must be the light. Show us how we can demonstrate love across the board and represent you well in all circumstances. And, God, would you heal us? Would you bring races together? Would you heal injustice? Would you restore inequality to equality? God, would you unite us as one nation under God? God, would you heal us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 7. And it's a story about how um, Jesus, again, does some very unexpected things. He shakes up the expectations of the religious leaders. And I was thinking... Um, when I grew up as a young person, I grew up in a church and in a very Christian home. It was kind of very churchy. And part of the way we lived that out uh, was that uh, if you were serious about Jesus, you didn't listen to music that was not about Jesus. The music you listened to was written by Christians, for Christians, about Jesus, and that was it. And if you listened to anything else, Jesus was very sad. And shortly after that, he got angry. <laughs> And that's how it was. And so, as a, you know, I was just heading into junior high, and I had a chance to hang out with the youth pastor in our church. And my parents were super excited, because who, do, right, who doesn't want their kids to go hang out with the youth pastor? That's got to be a good thing, right? So I went over to Mike's house to hang out, and you know what I found out? His whole upstairs was this vast library of rock and roll music on LPs. It was awesome, and he had this killer sound system. And we spent hours just listening to some of the best music I'd ever heard. And he's pulling out signed copies of Beatles albums, and he's showing me all this stuff, and it was awesome. And I went home, and my parents said, you know, did you have a good time? I said, yeah, I had a great time. It was super fun, but I think the youth pastor's going to hell. Because <laughs> in the world I grew up in, that was the expectation. But this, like, really shook up the expectations when I realized there must be Something else going on that my own expectations didn't cue me up for real well. And that's what we're going to find out happens with the Pharisees and the religious leaders here in Mark chapter 7. So let's take a look. Uh, uh, Mark 7, the Pharisees 
And some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, they gathered around Jesus. And they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. And the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. They had this very strong tradition that before you ate, before you took a snack, before anything went into your body, you had to be ceremonially clean and wash your hands in a particular way. Here's like the traditions were like a thing then, and here's how it worked. Everyone knew that there was God, and God is holy and God is perfect, but he's kind of out of reach and over there, right? And God, by his grace, had revealed a part of who he is by giving the law. The law represented God's wishes and his plans for his people, and the law was how you live because that's how God wanted you to. And the people wanted to observe the law. They wanted to obey the law, but the law raised some questions. It needed some kind of application, right? And so uh, what they would do is the religious leaders, the academics, the rabbis, the teachers, they would get together and come up with these hypothetical situations about um, how you live out the law. And, and all these different hypothetical situations that they came up with uh, were called traditions. And that, the traditions were how you actually practice the law. So in this case, there's this God who's pure and holy and clean, right? And he tells them in the law, be holy because I'm holy. And so you go, okay, so what does it mean to be holy and pure and clean? And they said, well, here's one of the things we're going to do to live that out. We're going to have this tradition where before you ever eat, you wash your hands. And it, was like, and it wasn't just, hey, rinse your hands off. It was detailed. You had to get a buddy who had the kind of the sister or the jar of water he'd pour it, and you had to start with your hands upwards like this, and they had to pour enough water over your hands to where it would drip off the wrist, but not so much water that it wouldn't come down and drip off the elbow, because that was a problem, because those were the rules. And if it dripped too far, you had to start over. It didn't count. Right? Like, seriously, this was the deal. That was the rule. And then after that, you'd turn your hands this way, and they'd pour it all down your arm, and then once that was all done, you had to take a fist of one hand, wash over the hand that way so as not to dirty this hand, and then do the other over there. And then when all that was done, you could eat. But probably lunchtime was over and you missed it anyway. <laughs> Very detailed, right? And this was not the only tradition by any stretch of the imagination. There were tons of them. Fourth commandment is what? Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. So here's this holy God who says, as an expression of who I am, I want you to keep the Sabbath day holy and not do any work on the Sabbath. The tradition people said, well, what does that mean? What is work? Let's define what work is. Let's set up some traditions to help us understand that. And so they had these traditional rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, and some of them were ridiculous. You couldn't wear, you couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath. Because This was the argument. If you had false teeth, they might fall out. And if you had to reach over and pick up your false teeth on the Sabbath, that was work. And so that shouldn't happen. They, there are discussions in the record that if you're an amputee and you have a wooden leg, but your house catches on fire, are you allowed to pick up your leg and carry it out of the house on your way? No, that's work. You can't do that on the Sabbath. What are they, okay, I granted, they didn't have social media, so they had a lot of time on their hands, but this is, this is what they came up with, coming up with these kinds of solutions to the question of what is work on the Sabbath. And it was crazy. And it's, actually kind of predictable what happens. See, initially, all of those traditions, even the ridiculously detailed traditions, all of them were initially coming from this place of, I want to know God, 
I want to live the way he calls me to live, and this is how I do it. That's a great starting point. But then something happens. Things get turned around, don't they? And eventually what happens is this tradition, which was initially designed to keep me close to God, actually is something that keeps me away from God. Right? It becomes this thing that, that gets in the way. It becomes this thing that I focus on. It actually becomes the point. And the moment that a tradition becomes the point, tradition becomes an idol. People getting so excited about whether they've got their false teeth in on a Sunday that they've lost sight of the God who loves them. People so concerned about obeying the rules to the nth degree that they lose sight of being in communion with God himself. And it happens. That was my experience with the Christian music. The listen only to Christian music became this thing, and it was kind of like an idol. And I was like, at many times, felt myself above others who didn't follow that same practice. And I got so focused on that part about me that it, it lost all meaning in terms of my actual relationship with God. And that happens all the time with traditions. How about this? How many of you um, at, at either now are currently doing or at some point along the way have been part of a read through the Bible for a year campaign? We do that a lot, right? And it's a great thing. It is designed to keep us connected to God, and it can do that. But you know what else can happen? We get so connected to that practice, so focused on the practice, so dialed into whether or not I've done my reading for today or not, then it, becomes the, it can become the whole of my relationship with God. And if I missed the verse last week, I'm probably not even a Christian. And it becomes this focal point, and it becomes an idol. Reading the Bible becomes an idol because it's just become a dead tradition. Here's another way that plays out. A lot of us love God, love his character, love his heart, want to be like him. And we believe that he's revealed to us in Holy Scripture the kind of world he wants us to live in and how we can create a society that reflects his nature and his character and his plans. And then, because of background and different stuff, we bring our convictions to bear, we decide, I think I've got the best idea of how to get to that kind of society that God wants. Some of us, decides, some of us decide that's with a series of very liberal convictions. Others of us decide the best way is with a series of very conservative convictions. Those convictions lead some of us to align with one party versus another, to take up one clause and not another, to talk about one candidate favorably and not another. And all of these things can legitimately begin as a sense of, I'd like to have my political life aligned with who I understand God is. But what happens with traditions? They have this ability to become the point. And we end up focusing on them and getting so locked in on this particular political view on either side of the aisle, that that's the whole thing. And it becomes an idol. And you know what that looks like? It looks like what I actually and you too see an awful lot of. People who, in the name of God, express such heart, harshness, <coughs> such hatred, such animosity towards an opposing candidate that it outshines anything else. I get the sense as I look around and as I check in on Facebook from time to time and I talk to different people that there, there's a, there are a group of us who are out there saying, I love Jesus so much that I hate that candidate. I'm going to show you how dedicated to God I am by how harshly I obliterate their character in public. <laughs> 
when that happens, we have made an idol out of political process. And what may have once been a, a great tradition has become something that's just dead and idolatrous for us. I'm hoping that for all of us, that for every one minute we spend complaining about an issue or about a candidate, that we spend at least an hour praying dearly for God's richest blessing for all. If you are not spending an hour in prayer for every minute that you're complaining about the political process, I'm going to suggest that you've made that process an idol. And folks, as Christians and as followers of Jesus, we can do way better than that. I want to encourage us in this season. There's a whole election cycle to come, right? We'll hear all manner of things, and, and we will be drawn into all manner of conversations as brothers and sisters in Christ, as representative of God himself. It falls to us to lead the way in love, kindness, charity, and respectful conversation with those with whom we agree and also those with whom we passionately disagree. And if we can't muster that up, then we better start asking, who are we really serving? Okay, so enough of that. I better stop before I get people really angry and I get in trouble. <laughs> so, Jesus, um, so Jesus is there. His disciples, uh, are the, the religious leaders come. They see that the disciples are not uh, rinsing their hands properly. They're not following their traditions. And this, is kind of, this gets them upset, and this is what they say to Jesus. It says, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? How come your disciples aren't doing it our way? How come your followers aren't following our traditions? And you can hear behind that, like a very thinly veiled reference to their expectations. These are the expectations that the religious leaders come to when they approach Jesus. First of all, they expect to be admired. They expect people to notice that they're the ones who are uh, very picky about the way they wash their hands and follow all the rules and live up to all the traditions. They expect to be admired for that, right? And not just that, they don't want to just be, they don't want just admiration, they want emulation. They don't just want to be noticed, they want to be followed. They want people to do it their way. And they're asking Jesus, how come this isn't happening? Don't you realize you're undermining your whole ministry by not making sure that these traditions are being followed? But Jesus sees something that maybe they're unaware of. He sees that, they're, that, they're, uh, that the outside of their life isn't connected to anything on the inside of their life. Right? He sees that their practice of, of dead traditions isn't tied to any kind of living faith on the inside. And because of that, he, he understands their traditions have no real value because of the disconnect. And so he gives it to them. And he calls them out. And he tells them what he thinks of their pursuit of these dead traditions. And this is what he says to them. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, and here he's quoting Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are very far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human traditions. You think you're following God, but the only thing you're following is your own humanity, your own particular opinion, your own particular style. That's the only thing that you're worshiping. He just really gives it to them. So how does that happen? How does a group of people who are like really intentional about their faith and, and start off wanting to please God in the way that they live, how does that happen? 
And, and how does something which was once a very vibrant spiritual discipline turn into something that's nothing more than a dead tradition? And sometimes it's difficult to tell the two apart, right? A spiritual discipline is this activity that we do. A spiritual dis discipline seeks to please God from the inside out. It says that there's a relationship with God on the inside that's very real, that's very genuine. And out of response to that, I want to live that out in a fresh and a powerful and an effective way. That's a spiritual discipline. A dead tradition, on the other hand, works in the exact opposite direction. Right? It's, a dead tradition is something that starts on the outside and it tries to appease God from the outside and to work that back in. A dead tradition says, hey, what's the, what do, what's the least I need to do to get by so God won't be upset with me? What are, the rule, what, is, what are the rules that I have to follow? And the difficulty in discerning between one and the other is sometimes that the, the very same activity can be one or the other. Take prayer. Prayer can be an incredible spiritual discipline which connects us to the heart of God very powerfully, right? Or, if we allow it to be, we can treat prayer and just kind of go through the motions and say the words and, uh, and try to put in the amount of time that we feel like we're supposed to put in, and it, become, it becomes this dead, dry tradition. The same activity can be either. It comes, it comes down to my motive, right? It comes down to my heart. Absolutely right. And so that's why the Apostle Paul, when he was talking to Timothy, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he talked about a group of people, and he lists like a horrible group of people, slanderers, and they hate God, and blah, 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 blah. But he ends with, and they have a form of godliness, he says, but it denies the power of real godliness. That is, it looks like godliness on the outside. They follow all the rules, they follow all the traditions, but it's not connected to anything alive on the inside. It's just dead tradition. And it's interesting, he says, have nothing to do with those people. The people he's talking about look on the outside like they're godly. And, he, and Paul says, no, don't have anything to do with them because it's just the outside, if the inside isn't real. What if I did this? My, my wife's birthday is coming up in August. And what if, for her birthday, I decided to just have a, a wonderful time, and I got a, got a room at the Davenport, and got reservations at a really nice restaurant, and had some flowers delivered, and a nice gift, and, and showered her with all of that, and she asked me, this is wonderful, but why, why all this? Why are you doing all this? And if I said, it's because I love you. It's because you're the, you're the center of my soul and my life, and I would do anything I could to bless you and let you know how I feel about you. I wish I could do more than this, but this I do to share with you how much I love you. That would be a great response. Somebody write that down. I'm going to need that in about a month and a half. <laughs> but what if my response was different? What if she said, why did you do all this for me? I said, well, it's your birthday, and I knew I had to do something or else you were going to be really mad. <laughs> so I Googled, what do you do for your wife on her birthday? And it said flowers, hotel, gift, right, and everything. And so that's what I've done. I hope you're not mad. <laughs> Biblical woman that she is, she would have nothing to do with me at that point. Because she'd say there's a difference, right, between the outside and the inside. That's the, that's the difference for us, right? That's the difference for us. What, I mean, we can say the same thing about almost any spiritual discipline out there. Your being here today, attending church on some kind of regular basis, can be a spiritual discipline that draws you closer and closer to God. It can Congratulations, you're doing that. Church attendance can equally be an absolutely dead tradition where you're just kind of in the habit of getting up, gathering the family, going to church before you hurry up and go out to lunch afterwards. There's nothing inherently virtuous about doing that unless the heart's in the right place and that makes it a spiritual discipline that way. 
Here's another one. It's the discipline of giving. And the discipline of giving is a fantastically powerful discipline. That discipline of saying, God, out of relationship with you, out of love for you, out of the desire um, to walk closely with you and have my whole life be invested in the directions that you want to take it, I want to take part of my financial life or all of my financial life and do with it as you direct, and I want to give a gift to you through the vehicle of the local church because good things are happening and people are growing in their faith and coming to faith. I want to be a part. That is an incredible spiritual discipline. In fact, if you're if your heart recently has been growing in faith and you're getting to know Jesus better and you're looking for ways to, to uh, catalyze ongoing growth, that discipline of giving, if it's not a discipline you're involved in, is powerful. I, I encourage you to step into that. But giving in and of itself isn't necessarily that virtuous because it can also just be a dead tradition. You can be someone who has been maybe part of a church and maybe has been giving and contributing generously for years and for years and years, but somewhere along the way, that giving got disconnected from the heart. The giving got disconnected from your love for Jesus and the love of the work that he does here in this world. And maybe because it has gotten disconnected, it's, it's been like, ah, it's not as joy-filled as it used to be. It's not as cheerful as it used to be. Maybe I'll step back from that discipline and not participate in that discipline as much because it seems like it's just a tradition. When a, when, a, when a spiritual discipline be, is becoming a dying tradition, can I, just, can I just recommend that we don't just give it up, but we turn to God and say, God, would you translate that back to what it's supposed to be? Whatever. Maybe, maybe you've been having great prayer times in the past, and just lately your prayer time is a little dry. Maybe you've been an avid reader of the Bible in years past, and recently it just doesn't seem to be as important. Maybe you've been a generous giver in the past, and recently you just felt less connected from that. In all of those cases, don't just stop. But say, God, would you change something? Would you reconnect that from just being a, a tradition to something that ignites in my heart and connects me to my love for you like it's, like it's supposed to be as a true spiritual discipline? That would be awesome. So Jesus comes down to this point. The, the religious leaders are saying, hey, your folks aren't washing their hands right. And, uh, and they're kind of afraid that because, because their hands aren't correctly clean, that somehow they're going to be defiled and be sinful. And Jesus wants to say, no, the problem isn't kind of the, the dirt and the filth that's out there. The problem's the dirt and the filth that's in here. This is the way that Jesus puts it then at the close of this passage. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. For it is from within. It's out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. It's a good long list. All of these evils come from inside, and they defile a person. The, the, the answer here is not cleaning up on the outside. The answer is allowing Jesus to do a work on the inside. When I was a, a young man, fourth, fifth grader, so my family took a big family vacation from down in Southern California where, where we lived up to visit my aunt and uncle and my cousins in Woodenville, Washington. It's about a 16-hour drive, as I recall, and we drove every last minute of it. <laughs> so we got there, and then the next day, because we hadn't driven long enough the day before, we got in the car for some two-hour trip to someplace scenic. I don't know if it was Snoqualmie Falls or Wenatchee or... Moses Lake, I have no idea. All I know is it's way too far away. 
So after two hours in the car, we get out, and my Aunt Joyce says these immortal words. Oh my gosh, the beans. <laughs> Didn't know what that meant at the time. Here's what it turns out it meant. Um, she'd been cooking some baked beans for an event that was coming up, and when she left, she forgot to turn off the oven. And in that moment, some two, two and a half hours removed from her home, she was reminded those beans were cooking and cooking and cooking. <laughs> so did we stay to enjoy the scenery? No, we hopped back in the car all the way back to Woodenville. And when we got there, it was fantastic because we opened the door, smoke is down to about here. We kind of army crawled into the kitchen, opened the oven, smoke pouring out. When you're in, when you're like, a little, little boy, that's hysterical. <laughs> it's really funny. For some odd reason, my aunt didn't think it was funny at all. And my mom, of all people, was on her side. So in order to show us how not funny that was, we got the joy of cleaning out the pot of the baked beans. I know, right? Totally unfair. In that pot was this, I don't know, it was like a new element in the periodic table. It was. It was like concrete and tar and mucus and some other stuff just all mixed together. It was, it was a nightmare. And we were assigned to clean it up and we scrubbed and we scrubbed and we scrubbed till our knuckles were bare. It must have been like two minutes of scrubbing. <laughs> and nothing was working. And I had a brilliant idea. Hey, nothing's cleaning up on the inside. Just clean off around the outside, make it look good, and then put it back in the cupboard. I know, right? Because I'm thinking we're leaving in two days. Odds are pretty good I'm not going to get caught on this deal. And he's going to have to pay the freight. Turns out he did. His mom was really mad. <laughs> when she, when she, uh, a couple weeks later, she opened it up, pulled out the pot, and it was done. It was worthless. It was so bad it had to be thrown away. Whereas Jeff and I had been satisfied simply to scrub up and clean up the outside a little so that it looked okay, even though we knew about the filth underneath. It's a pretty good image about what our defilement looks like as people, right? Our lives are full of this stuff inside that's just horrible. It's a nightmare, and it's not coming off no matter how much effort we give it. And will we satisfy ourselves just to clean it up on the outside and make it look nice and set it aside hoping that no one will ever know? Let's be honest, somebody always knows will always be found out. I want to ask you this morning about the state, not of the outside, but the state of the inside. I don't want to ask about kind of your particular practices of your faith and how those traditions are progressing and how they help you. I want to ask you about the state of the interior, the state of your heart. If you've tried hard, you already know it's impossible to clean up on your own. But are you willing today to seek the miraculous power of the creator of the universe to clean up the mess that can't be cleaned up any other way. So that ultimately, that shiny outside won't have to be just tossed out as garbage because of the filthy inside. I want to ask you to pray with me here for just a minute. Heavenly Father, we all share this sense that at different places, um, we try to please you. God, I think we probably all have some sense in this moment of those places where even, our, and even those efforts that were initially pure, that were initially great spiritual disciplines, I got, I, I got this sense that we have some of those that have become dead or dying traditions. 
And Lord, I simply want, on behalf of all of us, I want to invite you into that situation. God, would you reconnect our hearts with what you want to do as we practice our life of faith? God, would you reinvigorate the power of the time that we spend reading your word? God, would you ignite our hearts with a sense of what, of how you want to meet with us when we pray? God, would you restore to us a powerful joy and cheerfulness about the discipline of giving? We can go on and on and on, but God, you know what's on our heart. We don't want to be people who live out an external life of dry and dead traditions. But we want to be people who have wells of living water springing up from the inside, making us pure and clean. And we can't do that on our own. So God, we ask that you would do the work, that you would make us clean, that you would make us pure, and that ultimately you would satisfy our need to know you and walk with you and to be empowered by you to make the lasting difference in the society where you've placed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we thank you so much for finding North Church Sermons Online, and we hope that the message today brought value and enrichment to your life. If you'd like to participate in the giving of this ministry, there's a couple of easy ways for you to do that. You can text the word NORTH to 77977 and receive a text back and get your online giving set up in under 60 seconds. Or else you can visit us online at northchurch.net and click on Give Online and participating in the things that God's doing right here at North Church. We thank you so much for joining us. God bless.